Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we visit Berkeley Springs and sample healing waters from a natural spring so good that even George Washington traveled to check it out. Oh, people swear by that water. They take a bath in it, they wash their hair, they cook, they do everything. We also visit the Cassini Railroad in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. Tourists come from all around to ride its antique trains. And there's a crew of experts who keep them running. I started when I was 15 years old in shop, and then I'm 33 now. So, and I've left for a couple years, but I always seem to come back. And we speak with Kentucky author Silas House about his new novel, Lark Ascending. It's part of a growing genre called climate fiction. And so I do hear a lot of people say, the weather's different, the weather has changed. But I also hear those same people have been convinced by so many talking heads that climate change is not a real thing. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. There are natural springs all over Appalachia. The deep folds of rock that make up our mountains bring water from the depths that trickle out of our hillsides. That's where many people got their fresh water in the years before indoor plumbing. But in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, people are still filling jugs with spring water to lug back home. Why? Folkways reporter Zach Harold decided to fish around for some answers. Every couple weeks, Lauren Lee stuffs a few dozen gallon jugs into this big black laundry bag. She brings the bag to a covered pavilion right in the middle of Berkeley Springs State Park, which itself is right in the middle of downtown Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. She chooses one of two brick water fountains there and begins to fill those jugs one by one with water drawn from seven underground springs. Um, I like coming down here, I always meet new people. It's, it's just, I've never been able to do this anywhere I've ever lived. Lauren doesn't just come here to socialize, though. We have well water where we live, so it's a lot easier to use this on our machines in the house, like for coffee and for the plants, because our water kills our plants, and it's good for, like, the pets, stuff like that. The water here is free. But, of course, it wouldn't be much more expensive to just buy water at Kroger or Dollar General. It would certainly be more convenient. No empty jugs or laundry bags necessary. But the water Lauren draws from these springs has something that store-bought water doesn't. And I feel like this is part of the healing and just like the nutrients that I'm getting from the earth that I'm able to like be mindful about and take it in as I'm getting it and serving myself. People have been coming to Berkeley Springs for centuries looking for a healing. It was native people who apparently introduced Europeans to its medicinal properties. It was already such a popular destination by the mid-18th century that a young surveyor named George Washington made sure to stop by when he visited the area. Washington would return a few times, once to cure his own rheumatic fever, and later with his wife Martha and her daughter Patsy in tow, hoping to treat the girl's seizures. In 1776, when... Washington was probably busy with other concerns. The Virginia General Assembly established a town around the springs. They called it Bath, after the spa town in England. That began a flurry of development in town, and some buildings from that time still survive. 
There's the two-story Roman bathhouse, built in the 1780s. For a small fee, you can still enjoy a half-hour soak in a 750-gallon tub filled with spring water. The Gentleman's Spring, where you find the water fountains, arrived in the 1800s, as did the Ladies' Spring, which is today just known as the main bathhouse. Today, anyone of any gender can stop by for a massage, sauna, or bath if they can get a reservation. Well, let's see, Friday. No, we're booked up on Friday also. Booked Saturday too. You're welcome. That's Leslie Smith, who runs the front desk at the spa, and Jesse Snow, the pool manager. I stopped by the office to buy an empty jug to fill with water, only to find they were sold out. I sold 15 to one person on Saturday. Oh, people swear by that water. They take a bath in it, they wash their hair, they cook, they do everything. There's a lady that comes from um, China. And they come in here and all day long, five-gallon uh, jugs all day long, like 50 of them. Now, I didn't meet anyone from China when I visited. Closest I came was Lebanon. My friend told me about it a long time ago, and then when I moved closer, I realized I'm only 30 minutes away, then I started coming and get it. This is Fadi Talj. He's from Lebanon originally, and then Frederick, Maryland. He now lives about 30 minutes outside Berkeley Springs. But of course, 30 minutes is still a long way to drive to fill up a few five-gallon jugs with spring water every couple weeks. Yeah, I come from a long way to get it. Why? I like it. Um, tastes better. I don't know, it's supposed to be natural, and it's close to nature. So it probably just has some more of the chemicals in it that your body needs. That it's not filtered out. Yeah, but you don't find many of these places around, you know, there. So, so if you find one close, you, you know, you take advantage of it. No arguing with that. We certainly don't have a natural spring right in the middle of my hometown. So without the benefit of an empty jug from the gift shop, I dumped out my Nalgene and stuck it under the spout. The water tasted like water. And one bottle probably isn't enough to do much of anything but I didn't see any apparent effects on my health. When I got home, I called up Dr. Dorothy Vesper, a geology professor at West Virginia University, hoping she might help me understand what's in the water at Berkeley Springs that makes it so special. Turns out she's a fan too. Every time I go by, I fill my water bottle because I love Berkeley Springs water. It's good. It's good stuff. That said, she's not sold on the health claims. A few of Dr. Vesper's graduate students have studied Berkeley Springs water over the years, and there are minerals in the water, magnesium, as well as potassium, sodium, calcium, just in very small amounts. Seems to me most spring water, you'd have to drink a lot of it to get enough of anything that was nutrient helpful, except for maybe something like calcium. Their research did yield some good news, though. Not all natural springs are created equal. Some are not safe to drink from. Some have been contaminated by their surroundings, and others are actually just discharged from old abandoned coal mines. But Berkeley Springs? Pristine. It doesn't have a metallic. It's, a, it's sort of a soft spring water. I just think it tastes nice. I, I like it, um, and I have no qualms whatsoever. I would drink it right out of the spring. But aside from the taste, Dr. Vesper said the water's no better for you than what comes out of the tap at home. So what about the people who feel like they've been helped by the water, healed by it even? 
is that all just the placebo effect? Well, Dr. Vesper made clear she's not a physician, but she does have a theory. Personally, if you let me go and spend two weeks just sort of hanging out at some springs, I'd feel better. (laughs) I'd be happy to do it. And you know, there might be something to that. Because there is a peacefulness there among the spring-fed pools and the cherry blossoms. Maybe the benefit folks like Lauren and Fadi ascribe to the water actually comes from this ritual of returning to the same place week after week and bringing water up from the earth, just like our forebears have done for centuries. Maybe it's not the magnesium. Probably not the magnesium. Maybe it's the memories mixed in there, too. From the town formerly known as Bath, this is Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. Zach is one of our Folkways reporters here at Inside Appalachia. Since 2019, our Folkways team has produced more than 100 stories about Appalachian folk life. That is, traditions being passed down from one generation to the next. This next story is from our Folkways team, too, and it shows just how important that generational learning is. One of the people you'll hear is Cass Scenic Railroad senior employee Rex Castle. He passed away during the making of this story. But during his life, he was a crucial part of why visiting the Cass Scenic Railroad in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, feels like you're stepping back in time. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin visited Cass and brings us this story. This is the sound of a 1920s Heisler No. 6 locomotive known here as the Durban Rocket. Eager tourists lean out from the open-air coaches as the train departs and begins its journey into the mountains of Pocahontas County, West Virginia. It's a hot summer day, but not hot enough to keep Kentaro Okuni and his family away. Uh, because uh, my son uh, loves, uh, uh, especially for the steam train, yeah, so this is the uh, second, second trip <laughs> to visit uh, here. Okuni traveled from his home in the suburbs of D.C. with his wife Hiroi and his young son, Takenojo, to see the impressive Shea steam trains run. Many visitors I spoke to on the train were not from West Virginia. In the years before the pandemic, it was fairly common for folks to travel to the small town of Cass from all over the world. Riding the train at Cass is a niche experience one that wouldn't be possible without a committed group of experts who fix and operate the trains. One of those people is Rex Castle. He's the shop foreman down at the cast repair shop. Working on these old shades is something that's unique and different from any job you ever had. Castle has been working on these locomotives for about 30 years. Like a lot of other engineers, hostlers, and machinists, Castle is the third generation in his family to work on these locomotives. Well, my granddad worked for the CNO. He walked me on the railroad all the time. He would show me things. Of course, I was a, a boy and, you know, not understanding, but I did pay attention. But uh, then my dad worked here. He and, uh, he got me and He'd bring me up here as a, a little kid. He hustled. I would lay in the floor of the locomotive, and he would cover me up with an old greasy rag that was in there. <laughs> And I'll never forget, you know, I'd wake up and he'd be shoving coal over top of me into the fire box. And then I'd go right back to sleep. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's I've been around him all my biggest part of my life. The other guys in the crew refer to Castle as a wealth of knowledge due to his experience in the field. 
He's also approaching retirement. Yeah, as of um, of the crew we have right now, I'm probably the oldest that's left here. The old timer, as they would call. <laughs> like I say, we've got some younger guys that's coming up. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm hopefully, two more years. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, I want to show them what I know. What the uh, what I called the old timers before me handed down to me. So. That's one of the unique and challenging aspects of the job. The locomotives running out of casts were built in the early 1900s, all the way to the 1950s and 60s. The knowledge on how to repair and run these locomotives is specific to the local terrain and mostly handed down through hands-on learning. When you run up here on our railroad, we probably average 6 to 8% grades on all the way 11 miles to Baltimore and back. It's the only way you can learn how to do it is get in them with the engineer to show you and, and uh, to learn it hands-on. <laughs> There's no book out there that, that will tell you how to do this. One of the members of the younger generation is Dervin Lambert. Like Castle, Lambert grew up around these trains. His grandfather also worked at the cast repair shop as a machinist. I started when I was 15 years old in the shop, and then I'm 33 now. So, And I've left for a couple years, but I always seem to come back. I want to live here. This is where I choose to live. So, I, you know, this is the job that I enjoy doing for the area. So I'm hands-on and I don't mind getting dirty and, you know, hot. It's aggravating sometimes. But at the end of the day, it's a good job. So The job is not just running tourist trains. It's also running freight. The freight trains haul a variety of goods with modern locomotives. But it's the antique steam trains that require more effort. And the job is not for everyone, even people who thought they wanted to work on trains. Rex Castle has seen his fair share of people come and go. I didn't like the, the dirt, the soot, the smoke, uh, the oil. You're gonna, your clothes is going to stay stained. Uh, you go out here, you're black some, most days. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dirty job. It's, it's not a job for somebody who wants to stay clean. And they're hot. They are terrible hot. The hot, sunny season, I mean, like today where it's probably 80 out there, these locomotives probably average anywhere between 130, 150 degrees. It's hot enough on the engineer sitting there. You can't get out of it. And the fireman, he's shoveling for a ton of coal So in that heat. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard job. It's important for the railroad company to find committed folks who can handle the dirty, hot work. But the population here is shrinking, and the field is primarily dominated by workers who are men. So the railroad has expanded their employee search pool beyond the region. One person who doesn't mind the rough conditions is Matthew Hooser. He's one of the newest recruits, along with his friend Brown Culp. Well, long story short, uh, both of us volunteered at the North Carolina Transportation Museum in Spencer, North Carolina. That's both how we both kind of got started into this career, I guess you could say, and one year, we decided to kind of make a father-son trip. Uh, his dad and my dad, we paired together, came up and rode cast a couple years ago. We really enjoyed it. Ever since then, I guess you could say we kind of fantasized on, hey, it'd be great to kind of work up there. It seems like, you know, all the steam engines and everything like that, that'd be take our passion and take it to another level. Hooser is the engineer for the morning ride on the Durban rocket. As an engineer, Hooser is responsible for running the engine keeping it lubricated, watching the track for obstacles, coordinating with the train conductor, and helping the trip run as smoothly as possible. His friend Culp is a fireman. 
which means he fuels and maintains the fire in the locomotive during trips. People like Hooser and Culp are important for the future of the trains in Cass. Hopefully, you know, the younger generation we've got coming up here will keep them going for generations to come. If we can still afford to run them. <laughs> it's, it's getting where it's starting to really be hard. With industry costs rising, Cass employees worry that increasing ticket prices in response might push tourists away. John Smith is the CEO and founder of the Durban and Greenbrier Valley Railroad. He controls the finances. Our ticket price is still probably on the lower end of some of the other railroads around the country. But we're not in the middle of a um, uh, metropolitan area, or near one even. So everybody, everybody comes here has to drive here to get here. So it's kind of an expensive thing to do, more than just uh, drive 20 miles to go to a zoo or something. The biggest question mark is, are we going to have the base of customers that we had before? But there's an element to cast that keeps drawing folks back whether to work or to visit. Just riding a train, I don't know what it is, especially if you're in like one of those air-conditioned cars whipping down the tracks over on the Central. It's pretty cool. Um, even the ride here, with all the noise and everything else, it, it's like almost um, musical. It has, a, it has that kind of uh, effect on you. So when you hear a, a steam whistle a mile away, There's no one wouldn't say that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Which is why, for now, the trains are still running and drawing people to Cass, West Virginia. With Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin. To see photos of the antique trains at Cass and the crew who keep them running, visit our website, wvpublic.org. And thanks to Walter Scriptunis for his help with this story. In Knott County, Kentucky, students and staff recently returned to school. The first day had been pushed back after thousand-year floods devastated the area in late July. Now, school communities are coming back together. They're still grappling with loss, but finding hope in each other. WFPL's Jess Clark reports. Morning fog still rests in the mountains above Heinemann Elementary as buses start to arrive. It's finally the first day back for Knott County schools. A kindergartner in a ponytail approaches the entrance with her mother. There are still tears on her cheeks, but she tries to smile. Hey, what's this little girl's name? Carly. 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 Inside, students are eating breakfast. Festive back-to-school signs decorate the walls. But where there used to be green and gold tiles, now the floors are bare concrete. Workers had to strip out the floor after the flood. It's kind of like Hyman Elementary, just with no tiles. That's Hindman Elementary Principal Brandy Sims. Asked if this first day feels different than others, Sims says, not really. And that's the point. This is just kind of your typical first day, getting kids used to the routine and how things are going. So um, it, just being back here with the kids is the most normal feeling we've had so far. It's what we've been looking forward to. Getting this building ready for students was a monumental effort. Seven weeks ago, pre-K teacher Natasha Moore's room was under several feet of water. Her and her colleagues' classroom materials were destroyed. Rugs, books, toys, covered in gray mud and toxic residue. But when school reopened, thanks to donors, their classrooms were once again an explosion of color. So be a rainbow after the storm. <laughs> so
Most important to Moore, all her students are safe, and they're all coming back. Those who lost their homes found shelter with family members still inside district boundaries. That's not the case at Emmalina Elementary, a few miles away. Special education teacher Kimberly Mosley is in her office going through stacks of files. Right now we're in the process of getting the folders for the kids that have left us and had to go to other schools because they've been relocated, some at the campground, some at the lake. Some have just moved because they can't find permanent residence here. At least five students have gone to other districts, but Mosley believes that number may grow. Then there are records belonging to Madison Noble, who would have been in second grade this year at Emmalina. She died with her siblings in the flood. Mosley can't bear to look at the file. So I just put it in the bottom drawer, and that's where it'll stay. So, I don't know. It's just been working through things like that all day long. It's a little challenging. The district has mental health practitioners on standby for students and staff who need to talk about the trauma they've been through. But so far, Mosley says kids have just been excited to be back. They're not talking yet about the flood. Fourth grader Brantley Roark lost his home in the flood and is living with his grandmother now. He's glad to be back in the classroom. I feel good coming back to school because you see your friends again and stuff. Outside on the playground, teacher Heather Hammond is supervising her second graders during their recess. The fog has burned off the mountains, and it's sunny and warm. One of Hammond's students runs up to her and hugs her around the legs. When we first get out here, I'll start sweating. Oh, mercy. But I'm okay. But you're okay. All right, as long as you're okay. Like many teachers in Knott County, Hammond's focus these first few weeks will be on her students' social-emotional needs rather than academics. When I prayed last night and I prayed this morning, it was for them to be able to see Jesus pouring out of me into them because... What they went through this summer, I just want them to know they're loved. And it may take a while before the learning starts, but they've just been through so much to be so little. Hammond doesn't know yet what her students have seen and been through. But when they're ready to talk about it, she'll be ready to listen. I'm Jess Clark in Emmalina. Coming up, Kentucky writer Silas House speaks with Inside Appalachia. You know, when I think of Contemporary Appalachia, I think that you just can't deny our culture is such a, a tangled knot of uh, Native American, African, and Scots-Irish influences. That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Well, there's the dark and troubled side of life. There's a bright and a sunny side too. Amid extreme weather events like floods and fires, a new literary genre is emerging called cli-fi, short for climate fiction. Cli-fi tells stories about the effects of climate change on people and society, and Appalachian writers are penning their own works in the genre, including one of the region's premier writers, Kentucky author Silas House. His new novel is Lark Ascending, which tells the story of a climate refugee from Appalachia. 
Silas House, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia to speak with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Lark Ascending is a, a gripping novel. I understand you were in Heinemann in late July when the floods hit. So you hear you have this book about a climate-changed world, and you're experiencing the, the effects of it firsthand there in Kentucky. What, what was that like? Well, I was on my way to the Appalachian Writers Workshop at Hyman, which was sort of the epicenter of the flooding. So I wasn't there, but I I was there after the floods hit and worked in some of the flood relief. And I think, you know, a whole lot of people realized climate change has come to us and it's undeniable in, in that particular flood. It was just um, so quick and the rain was so violent it was it's just undeniable that it's something new uh it's something you know that we didn't experience in our childhoods it's different um it's here you know what's your sense of how people in appalachia feel about climate change it it seems like it's still politicized but at the same time you know people see the weather and even if they don't believe it's man made they see the effects in the coal industry and the gas industry What's your sense of of where Appalachia is on climate change at the moment? Well, that's an interesting question because it makes me think of growing up, you know, how important the weather was. Everyone commented on the weather all the time. And so I do hear a lot of people say the weather's different. The weather has changed. But I also hear those same people sort of have been convinced by so many talking heads that climate change is not a real thing. So it's like on one hand, I hear people in my family verify it, <laughs> you know, by saying this didn't happen when I was growing up, but at the same time sort of denying that it's, uh, you know, because of climate change. So I think, you know, the there's so much bad information out there and sort of one of the best things about the internet is, how much information it gives us, and also the worst thing about the internet is how much information it gives us. Tell me a little bit how you conceived this story and then and then wrote it. Well, the family who is at the center of this book are um, they're from the West Virginia Maryland border. They live in a very small town right there. The climate change has fueled uh, ferocious forest fires that are spreading from the west. At the beginning of their story, they have to leave Appalachia, um, central Appalachia, and actually going up into Maine. And then from Maine, they go to Nova Scotia, then across the Atlantic, and finally to Ireland. So they're making this sort of epic journey out of Appalachia and across the sea to to what so many people think of as, as a homeland of Appalachia. You know, when I think of Contemporary Appalachia, I think that you just can't deny our culture is such a a tangled knot of uh, Native American, African, and Scots-Irish influences. All three of those cultures have come together to make the Appalachian culture, to my mind. And so, in a way, this family's sort of making a reverse journey. So I do think of it as sort of a global Appalachian story. And I also think, you know, to go back to the flooding a lot of people have talked about Appalachia as a refuge when climate change, you know, goes into higher gear. But in fact, I think Appalachian people are going to suffer 
greatly at, at the hands of climate change. And a lot of that has to do with the way that, you know, it's been treated as a sacrificial ground for over a century uh, by the rest of the country, the rest of the world, the way that has changed our topography, our drainage, our aquifers, etc. So I just don't think you can separate Appalachia from climate change and climate refugees, which is something we're going to be talking more and more about. So I was thinking about all those things when I was writing the book and, and how we have to be thinking about those things. We don't have any choice now. One of the things that strikes me about Lark Ascending that is very quintessentially Appalachian is the way in which you write these moments of joy into what is otherwise a dystopian story. Like there's one scene where Helen finds sardines in a canteen and red and purple socks. And the characters that are talking about are so excited and joyful about that. And then another section they're, they're describing how birds move and as and the passage of evening to night. Would you mind reading that uh, excerpt from the from the novel where they're discussing that? We walked into the purpling of evening, the gloaming, Helen announced, and I wondered how the world had known in all this time to start its way toward nighttime without Helen around to speak it into being. Why do you call it that? I asked her. She was balancing herself with her arms out as we crossed a jagged line of stones across a quickening stream. What would you have me say instead? Dusk, twilight, I answered, watching the cliffs above us. I was always more nervous around rushing water like this because it limited what we could hear of the rest of the world. But the word gloaming is so much lovelier, she said, as if that was that, the end. Tall pines loomed all around us, fragrant with sweetness, and then we came into a clearing where we could see the silhouette of mountains against the darkening sky. I should think we're two days' walk from Glendalough, Helen said, more to herself than me. Several starlings rose from an ash tree atop the wooded hill before us. At least a hundred fluttered skyward. They all moved together, as if they could predict each other's movement. They swooped down and up, and in a spiral movement, an undulation, dozens of birds moving, as if they were of one mind. I had seen this happen before, but it always felt like a kind of magic. A murmuration, Helen breathed out. Yeah, I just I'm struck by that mix of of joy even within a dystopia. Can you talk about that aspect of the novel a little bit and how it reflects Appalachia? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because you know, anytime you're writing a book that has an issue at its core, no reader will really care about that unless you create a human story that grows out of that issue. And so this is not a book, you know, where you're constantly being harangued about climate change or the demise of democracy or things like that. But it is a book in which the characters have been affected by those things. But the most important part is the human story. You know, you have to create characters that readers care about. And I hope that I've done that in this book. But it is a book about grief. To me, that's the central theme it's about grieving the loss of someone you love. It's about grieving the loss of your country. It's about grieving the loss of normalcy. 
to sustain myself and the reader for almost 300 pages, I have to have these moments of joy and wonder um, and beauty throughout the book. And really, that's how we get through grief. You know, the only way you can get through the darkness of grief is to recognize these moments of beauty and joy and wonder. And one way I'm able to do that in the book is that one of the main characters is a dog. And so, you know, as far as we know, dogs are not aware of their mortality. The dog is not aware that it's walking through an apocalyptic landscape, you know, and so the dog is able to hold on to this joy and this hope in a way that the humans cannot. And so some of the chapters are from the point of view of the dog. And, you know, one of his great joys is is olfactory. It's all about <laughs> what he's smelling. And so I had to latch on so much to scent in this book. And when you're, you know, spending years writing a book and you're thinking a lot about just the sensation of scent, it does make you think more about that sense of wonder and joy and um, those little moments of joy that really carry us through the darkness. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Seamus and Lark. Seamus is the dog. But that is the one, one of the few relationships in Lark Ascending that is completely trustworthy. There's no doubting. There's no distrust. And that seems like a theme, too. You know, there's a, there's a part where Helen, um, one of the characters, tells Lark, don't go trusting everyone, Lark. But if we can't trust a few people in this world, then there's no point at all. It's one of the things that gets us through. And that seems like a particularly resonant message in this time we live in, where there's so much division and distrust and polarization between people, even neighbors. What is that, what is that, that quote and that consideration of trust and relationships and Lark Ascending have to tell us about today and our life in Appalachia and the U.S. today? Well, I, I'm afraid it just reveals more about me than anything else. And the older I get, the smaller my circle becomes, you know, and I think the the fewer people that I truly trust. Um, and I just think that's a lesson of aging that, you know, you you sort of gather in your true friends and your true family and you depend more on them. And it's it's really easy to understand those loyalties in a much deeper way. Uh, you know, I, I turned 50 while I was writing this book, and I think that shaped a lot of my point of view on those things. Um, but at the same time, I was thinking about, you know, if you are a person who has lost everything and everybody, I mean, Lark has lost every person he's ever loved. And in the book, he's trying to create a family for himself in the form of this dog, Seamus, and the mysterious Irish woman, Helen. And so, you know, he has to be very careful in creating this family. And one of the themes that runs through all of my work is the idea of created family. As a gay person, you know, that's been a cornerstone of my life. You have to have not only a blood family, but a found family or a created family. Um, and I think that's commentary on that, you know, that a lot of the times this sort of found family is is immediate. It's in, very instinctual. 
Um, and so you have to really hone your trust instincts in that way. So that's what Lark is doing in the book. Silas House, it's been wonderful th- having you on Inside Appalachia. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. Thank you so much for reading the book. I appreciate it. That was Kentucky writer Silas House. His new novel is Lark Ascending. It's available now. Before many bridges were built, people used ferries to get across the sprawling Ohio River. Now only five of these boats remain in use. But, as Liam Nehemiah reports, the ferry boats that still chug along are the heartbeat of some small communities in the Ohio Valley. It's been his routine for decades at the Cave and Rock Ferry, shuttling passengers between Crindon County in western Kentucky and southern Illinois. Cars rumble onto the barge. The barge is unchained from the dock. And the boat named Lonnie Joe roars to life, pushing from the bank of the Ohio River. 62-year-old boat pilot Rick Turner knows this wheelhouse like the back of his wrinkled hand. Yeah, this is your, your steering rudder right here. We don't have backing rudders on this boat. It's a single engine. And some of the gear displays in the boat are just a bit younger than he is. Oh, yeah, it's pretty. It just comes natural anymore. This free ferry ride takes about 500 cars across the river each day, including trucks carrying lumber, tourists that come all across the country, and Clara Talbert who's been riding the boat since the 1960s. I mean, I've got six grandkids, and they've all grown up riding it back and forth, back and forth. So, yeah, yeah, it's just a part of our life. It's just part of our life. And ferries like these used to be a part of life for many more Ohio River communities back in the day, from Huntington, West Virginia, to Shawneetown, Illinois. Several of the ones that still exist started in the early 1800s when they were much more of a necessity for trade and transportation. Travis Vasconcelos with the Howard Steamboat Museum in southern Indiana says Louisville had four river ferries at one point. One kept operating into the 20th century, but then a passenger bridge was built in 1929. And when it did, the ferry boat business literally dried up and died overnight. And it was kind of sad because it was a over 100-year-old ferry operation. And many other river ferry crossings meant a similar fate when bridges were put in decades ago. Vasconcelos says there have been a couple of attempts to bring back a ferry operation in Louisville to no success. He says the nostalgia and history of such ferries is worth preserving, but some people need more than that to buy in. At least one Ohio River ferry gets rented out for events like dances. If you're not just preserving a road, a roadway connection between the banks, then you have to offer something that gets people involved. And that's the sad part, because it's taking away from what the experience really is. A ferry can preserve a community's cultural heritage. Gary Bowden is the president for the Sistersville Ferry Board, which traverses the Ohio River between West Virginia and Ohio. I use the term sometimes a West Virginia treasure because it's the last operating ferry in the state. The ferries existed since 1815, but was at risk of closing recently because they were struggling to find a new boat pilot. The previous pilot eventually came back to run it. Bowden says it's the stories of passengers that keep the ferry afloat. They'll tell you that, golly, uh, you know, I remember when I used to ride this when I was a kid or We drove down from, you know, could be an hour away just so we could say we rode it. 
Back on the Cave and Rock Ferry in western Kentucky, Clara Talbert leans on the railing, enjoying the breeze rolling off the Ohio River. And I'm glad I'm part of the history of it, that I get to enjoy it. She hopes river ferries like this one stick around for future generations. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Liam Niemeyer. The Healing Appalachian Music Festival returned to Greenbrier County, West Virginia in September. Headlined by Eastern Kentucky's Tyler Childers, the festival's gone from a single day to two and included performances by Arlo McKinley, Margot Price, and Galactic, among others. But the festival has a larger mission than just having a good time. Bill Lynch spoke with organizer Charlie Hatcher about what the festival hopes to accomplish. Charlie, first off, tell me what is Healing Appalachia? Healing Appalachia is an event that is organized and put on by Hope in the Hills. Hope in the Hills is the 501c3 nonprofit that's behind Healing Appalachia. Healing Appalachia is the event. So Hope in the Hills, tell me about that. Well, Hope in the Hills was created back in 2000, it was 2016. We started into this thing. Basically, I I had a, a friend of mine, her son had passed away. I dealt with a lot of death, I felt, that year from friends of mine that have passed away due to overdose, drug abuse. And when my friend called, that was kind of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. At that point, I just sat there and thought, you know, to myself, I want to be a part of the solution to this and not sit on the sidelines and start helping my neighbors and start helping my friends, start helping my family. If you live in Appalachia, everybody knows somebody. I always say, whether it was your brother, your preacher, your teacher, your mother, your cousin, if you live here, you've been affected by it in one capacity or another. You know, just sitting, it's hard to sit back and watch it go down like this. We're proud people. We're hard workers. Whenever there's a disaster, such as, you know, flooding that's gone on, you always see communities come together and lift one another up. You know, I guess one of my personal goals with Hope in the Hills was to capture that feeling and keep it going year round. The the first concert, the first festival, uh, what year? Was that 2016, 2017? 2018. It took us about it took us about a year and a half to get the whole thing together and go through the process to become a nonprofit, assembling a board, figuring out you know because we we are a true definition of a nonprofit. Um, we're all volunteer. I had to leave the board because it became way too much, and I'm the only paid employee of the board, and I'm I'm just an independent contractor, and that's mainly because. It's here in Lewisburg where I live. We're a granting organization. We're not doctors. We're not a recovery center. We grant out money to those that are working in fields of recovery. We're doing this this festival. Have you got any pushback? Nobody ever tried heroin or meth for the first time and said, hey, I want to be an addict. You don't go into it thinking that that's the case. And, and, you know, let me back up to these needle exchange clinics. It's a public health thing more than anything. The, the, the rise in hepatitis, the rise in AIDS, diseases that are spread through intravenous drug use are all a public health crisis. And if we can do anything to curb that, then we should. And it's hard for folks to understand that. I have to say I was guilty of it too. I did not understand it until I actually sat down and listened and looked at the statistical data behind this. And if you look and you see where the highest rates of AIDS transmission, hepatitis transmission, they're all in areas where there are not these these needle exchanges. Folks that want to do drugs are going to find a way to do it. They are. But if we can get them into these clinics where we're giving them clean supplies and getting a moment to talk, it was all worth it. Because if that one moment stuck and they said, you know what, man, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to find the chain. I, I'm not, I don't want to be this anymore. 
then it was all worth it. If you look at these areas where these these clinics are available to folks, the hepatitis and AIDS numbers are down. A big problem with, with drug abuse is, is theft. You know, people break into your uh, tool shed and steal your weed eater and things of that nature. And people get angry, and they should be angry. But be a part of the solution. Sitting back on the sidelines and throwing stones at folks is not going to get us any. Getting folks to be part of the festival, has it been hard to... Well, fortunately, I work for a company called WhizBang, which is the management company that does Tyler's career. And Tyler's a friend of mine. I've known Tyler, I think we first met in 16. And I spoke with Ian Thornton. He is Tyler's. Ian said, well, let's talk to Tyler and see if he, this is something that he would be willing to be a part of. And he's been a great partner. He grew up in Appalachia. He knows what it's like. And he's always, anytime we've ever been there and in need, he was always there to help us. And he's been a great partner in this. Also, you, you look into the music community. You know, the unfortunate thing there is substance use disorders, very prominent in the music industry. I mean, look at all the greats that we've lost due to drug abuse, alcohol abuse over the years. So folks, it becomes easier when they understand who we are and what we do. It's not just about music, though. You've got uh, some other things happening during the festival, right? Oh, yeah. It's definitely not just about. We have over 30 service providers from eastern Tennessee, North Carolina, West Virginia, Virginia, southeastern Ohio, Pennsylvania. There are people that come in. We don't advocate for one type of recovery. We do you know, because each person's different. We advocate for what works best for you. So that's why we have different service providers coming in from all over the place. And in hopes someone might say, you know, and another thing too, we have over 20, I think it's 31 states represented in ticket sales this year. So maybe someone comes here and says, oh man, you guys are in our neighborhood. My cousin, he's not doing so good. Maybe we can get him down to talk. You know, that's, that's the hope behind it all. It's a hope that there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And it, my hope is that everyone can see that. It is a hard path and it's a hard road. But people do recover, man. I've got friends that have, you know, they're in, you know, 10, 11 years of sobriety and recovery. And it's a struggle for them every day, but they stay strong and they're prominent people. I mean, they're out here, folks, that you never thought would ever hold down a job. They're just out here doing, having two and three jobs, you know, taking care of their kids, getting married, taking care of their neighbors, looking after people. So it is possible to recover. And the hope is that someone will find one of these recovery booths or, or places of recovery at our event and maybe be able to help a friend. For more information about the Healing Appalachia Festival or Hope in the Hills, visit HealingAppalachia.org. We close out the show with Jim Lang, the host of West Virginia Public Broadcasting's music show, Eclectopia. Along with a broad interest in all types of music, Jim spends time hiking, mountain biking, and studying the sounds of nature. He sent us this seasonal radio postcard. Fall is here. No doubt about it. Even before the calendar declares the autumnal equinox, it was already here. And I think most of us felt it. For me, it begins with the cicadas in August. The cicada song is not at all subtle. It's raspy, even rude. Then in September, there are the katydids. A much softer, synchronous, echoing sound. And then finally, the crickets. Crickets become part of the late summer symphony. I spoke to entomologist Dr. Tracy Lasky. 
the year, late summer, just prior to fall, you can hear some of our very common um, orthoptera, which are katydids and crickets, along with some of the true bugs, which cicadas belong to. So it's a really special time of year just before we reach the fall equinox when you can hear both cicadas and katydids and crickets. These creatures are creating love songs to attract mates. Yes, yes, those long summer evenings and and nights. As crickets mature and become adults, they need to mate and the females need to lay eggs for the next generation. And so the males create these songs to attract females to them. And so it really is a love song that the male cricket is singing in hopes of finding a female. I think for most of us, the cricket song is so mellow, so casual, and even romantic. Yeah, a cricket is basically rubbing its two wings together, the file and the scraper, and you can think of it almost as a violin. You know, those songs are really the summer lullaby as we move into fall and winter. What's the use of my wonderful dreams And why would they need me Where would they lead me Without you to nowhere Just nowhere For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jim Lang. next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Appalachian Roadshow, The Company Stores, June Carter Cash, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.